Well, good morning to all of you again. Good to see you. We are sort of wrapping up this series here in the next few weeks, and I just kind of thought about how is it that we want to end this thing. And I thought, well, let's talk about something that I think we haven't touched on and that I think is really important to this whole conversation as it relates to our relationship with each other and relationship with people that uh, you know, aren't part of our body and family, friends, all of that as we head into the holidays and those are staring at us. We get around people we only see once a year, thank goodness, right? and uh, people that, that we see in the community and that kind of thing. So I just want to sort of just have this conversation with you about kind of relational stuff that happens and really what Scripture might have to say about it in a roundabout way, okay? So we're going to talk about this, and I think it's pretty important. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to do some introductory stuff. Then we're going to go into the story. We're going to look at a story of two people. Actually, it's like two people and a crowd, And in that story, we discover, I think, some observations. We're going to make some observations, uh, two uh, to be specific, make two observations. And then um, we're going to do some application at the very end, okay? So we'll go through the text, go through the story, look at this thing, and then we'll do some application at the very end about kind of how, where, where I want to go with this whole conversation today as it relates with grace. If I had, like, I asked myself this week, if I had one last thing to say to you about grace, because I think this is the last thing I'm going to be able to say to you, um, what would it be? And it's a conversation that I think is so vital to the health of our relationships together as a, as a community of believers, but also it's vital to the health of our relationships um, with anybody else we come into contact with within the community of Arnold itself as we are a small town And what we're going to talk about tends to sort of, well, everything we talk about tends to be bigger when you're in a small community. So let's let's jump off and kind of talk about some of these things. One of the things that we've been saying throughout this series is that God's church is most appealing when the grace of God is most apparent. And what we've been saying throughout this whole thing is that as we've experienced the grace of God in our lives, we are hoping, and, and as we experience that in deeper ways, we're hoping that 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 exudes from us then into the life of other people that we're around, that we in some way become more gracious people as we experience God's grace and deeper levels. And as a matter of fact, I'd make that argument all day long that if you find somebody who is, who is the most gracious person when it comes to the extension of grace to other people, they're patient, they're kind, they're loving, they're forgiving, um, they're joy-filled, when you find those kind of people, those are the kind of people who have experienced God's grace at the deepest levels and recesses of their hearts. They're the people who have allowed grace to truly uh, infiltrate their heart and their mind so that they just exude this when it comes to other people. So if you find really, really judgmental people, I think you find people who haven't experienced God's grace at the deepest levels. That's just my thought. That's been my experience. That's kind of what I see, and I think Scripture sort of backs that up. But as we jump into this topic, I sort of want to ask a question. Let's just, let's just have some kind of audience participation, right? How many of you have ever been the subject of somebody's judgment? Yeah, well, there you go, right? Like today. Yeah. I mean, somebody came to a conclusion about you. There's nothing, there's nothing more poignant about a judgment than the fact that somebody has come to a conclusion about you, haven't they? And, and, and the hurtful thing about it, the difficult thing for us when people come to conclusions about us, is that they're usually kind of right. Did you hear that? They're kind of right. 
But if they understood the story in its fullest context, if they understood our backgrounds and our experiences and our upbringings, they understood our personalities and the differences that we have in our personalities and how we look at the world and the lens in which we see the world is different, how we've experienced God is different, how we experience relationship is different, how we understand conflict to be different, how we communicate is different. The language that we use and the words that we choose are interpreted differently by different people and they're meant differently when we say them. And what's funny is when people come to conclusions about us, we don't like it. But how many of you now with the same raising of hands have come to conclusions about other people? Yeah, yeah. see, like only half of you, right? Because the rest of you would never do that. You're absolutely right. You would never do that. Okay, confessional is later. But the point is, is that all of us have been the subject of judgment. And the truth is, is that all of us have judged people. We just have. And I I raise my hand in that too. And and honestly, I think we judge too quickly. We, We come to conclusions about people too quickly because we're never concluded. My life is not concluded. Unless I am done breathing, you can't make a conclusion about me because my life is not concluded. You see? Once I've stopped breathing, my heart has stopped beating, now you can make some conclusions because my life has concluded. But I'm, I'm a person that's in process. I'm a person that's being sanctified. I'm a person that is in transition. I'm a person who is becoming more like Jesus, hopefully, every single day, and so are you. And if that's the case, then why, why do we come to conclusions about people when we don't have the full story? And so that's where I want to turn. That's where I want to talk. That's where we're going to look at Acts chapter 9, and we're going to take a look at this, and it's something maybe you're familiar with. It's a text probably you're familiar with. It's one that isn't necessarily taught on a lot, but but I want, as we go through the story, I want you to see it through that lens, that what happens is we make conclusions about people all too quickly, and usually we make conclusions based upon how they fit with our agenda, and we're going to see that here clearly in the text. All right, so we're in Acts chapter 9. The story goes like this. There was a man named Saul, and Saul was a devout Jew who was completely religious and dedicated to his faith. And what I mean by that is he was so dedicated to his faith, he would kill people to prove his faith. That's pretty dedicated, isn't it? He's like a first century terrorist. That's kind of how he was. He presented himself that way. So Saul is um, a Pharisee. He is completely committed to his religion, over and above even sort of the violation of the principles of his religion. He has in some way negotiated some of the commandments like, you know, thou shalt not murder, and he's decided, well, it's okay if it protects my faith or furthers my faith in some way. So as any religious person does, he has negotiated sort of some principles of his faith away so that he can violate the very principles he would say he would espouse. And this is how committed he is to his faith. He is such a radical that he will kill people. And so what we find that Luke records for us in this early part of the church, Jesus has died, he's risen again, and he has um, uh, empowered his church through the Holy Spirit. And we're getting the chronicling then of the history of the church here in Acts. That's really what's going on. And Luke records that meanwhile, Saul was still breathing murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. So here he is, he's a Pharisee, he's a Jew, And he is condemning these people who have come to follow Jesus and proclaim Jesus to be God's son and to be the Messiah of the world. Now, this is a very controversial thing for a Jewish person. Jesus seemed to violate a lot of the Jewish principles of their faith. Um, To see him as the son of God was almost blasphemous. And so Paul is attempting, or Saul, excuse me, is attempting to take out these people and to sort of snuff out this uprising, this new religion that is starting up 
that is a threat to his own. So he's breathing out murderous threats. He's basically causing everybody to live in fear. I'm going to come get you kind of thing. And as we see in the text, he plans to do just that. In the next verse, he went to the high priest and he asked him for letters. So he's so committed to his faith that he goes to his leadership and he says, I need you to approve of the arrests of some people. I need you to stamp and to sign here so that I have the authority to go into the synagogues in Damascus and to pull these people out who are heretical and throw them in prison. So he goes to the high priest, the high priest gives him some letters, and then he's headed to the synagogues in Damascus where he is going to find Christian people who who have claimed to follow Jesus, these Jewish people or even Gentile people who have claimed to follow Jesus, and he's going to arrest them and he's going to throw them into prison. This is, this is his, he has dedicated his life to this. Moving on, the next verse, so that if he found any who belong to the way, now these are the people who have decided to follow Jesus, whether men or women, like he's indiscriminate in this. This is how brutal this man is. He is indiscriminate in who it is that he decides to throw into prison. He might take them then as prisoners to Jerusalem. So you get the idea. You've got a radical Jew He has got in his hand the authority to arrest people who claim to follow Jesus, and he is headed to Damascus where he's going to round them up, he's going to tie them up, he's going to shackle them, and he is going to take them with him to Jerusalem to put them into prison. So you get the picture. Now, if you're a Christian, do you love this guy? No, like you're you're pretty much afraid, right? Now, if you're a radical Jew, if you're a high priest, do you like this guy? Yeah, oh yeah, you like this guy. You're cheering for him. Okay, moving on, the next verse. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly something happens. Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. This is something completely unexpected. He's on his way. He's got his letters in his hand. He's going to arrest these people. He's going to throw them into prison. And suddenly this light just sort of flashes around him. And it's so bright, as a matter of fact, that it, it blinds him. It completely blinds him. And then this, this sort of thing happens here where this if we move on to the next verse, he fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, if you're on the way to the market and you've got your list in your hand and a light strikes and like you're blind and then you hear a voice from heaven saying, you know, why, why aren't you buying my favorite dessert? You know, like that would sort of stun you. But to put it in a context where he's on his way with his list of people that he's going to arrest, and this light shows out, and all of a sudden you're blinded, and this voice starts speaking to you. That will get your attention. That will get your attention. And it gets his attention, continuing, Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. Of course, that's kind of a good question, don't you think, when you're blind and you're on your way with your list to collect people to throw them into prison? that this voice speaks out and all of a sudden you want to know, like, who am I talking to? Who am I speaking with? Continuing then, Luke records, I am Jesus. I'll tell you who I am. I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. He replied, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And we have the first clue here that Paul's life is about to be completely turned upside down. He is about to be reoriented in his purpose in his calling, in his responsibility in the world. This is like the most radical conversion experience that you could, a person could ever have. But I'll tell you what, it took a radical conversion experience to get that man to turn his life around. And it's in this moment that Paul's life 
becomes flipped. Now, I asked you a question. I said, if you were a Jewish person dedicated to the faith and you were a high priest and a Pharisee, did you cheer this guy on? Yes. But you're not going to like what's about to happen. And if you're a follower of the way, and all of a sudden this person who is threatening your life turns his life around or has his life turned upside down, you might want to get to know that person. And this is just a radical conversion that takes place in his life. Continuing, Luke records that Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. And the, the description goes, and I've cut it out of this text for sake of time, but he, he goes to this person who, whom God calls to, to talk to Paul, or Saul, excuse me, and something like scales falls, fall from his eyes after a few days. And he, he literally has his life turned around and he becomes a radical follower of Jesus. The, the very person that he was persecuting, the very thing he was against, all of a sudden he's for. And, and I've said this before and I'll use the same equivalent again. And I understand it was taken out of context a few weeks ago, so I want to make it in context again. This is the equivalent, equivalent, I'm not saying it happened, it's the equivalent of Osama bin Laden when he was alive, suddenly becoming Pope of the church. That's how radical this is because we know that Saul becomes obviously Paul, his name has changed, and he is the founder of tons of New Testament churches and he's the writer of the bulk of our New Testament. This man, this same man who had letters, who was breathing out murderous threats and was trying to squash the very thing he then became, is the equivalent of the world's number one terrorist suddenly becoming the leader of the church. That is how radical this conversion is. This is how transformational this experience is in the first century. So he spent several days with the disciples in Damascus because he was on his way to Damascus. The conversion takes place. He ends up in Damascus. He is, his sight is restored. And then he begins to actually do something pretty radical. Let's take a look at that. It says this, at once, at once, not like three days later or five days later or a year later, at once he began to preach in the synagogues. The very synagogues that he was going into to round up people who were not in agreement with him, he is now in those same synagogues, not only in agreement with them, but actually proclaiming the same message that they would hold to be true and valuable. So here he is in the same synagogue, where just moments before he was coming to arrest everyone, he is now there as one of them. And so he enters and he begins to preach in that synagogue that Jesus is the Son of God. I mean, these people must have looked at him and said, what just happened? They're confused. I mean, how could this happen? I'm guessing that the people who were followers of Jesus probably had some sort of foreknowledge that he was coming. In fact, it's pretty implicit within the text that they kind of knew that he was coming. And I think the Jewish leaders knew too, and they're probably just biding their time. We can't, let's kick him out. No, let's not kick him out. Let's just wait for Saul. When he gets here, he'll clean house. And then we'll go back to our worship the way we know it. And everybody's kind of waiting on him to show up and he shows up and he startles everyone by doing something that they didn't anticipate, they didn't expect. And so continuing, we find this, that after many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. Is this a surprise? This is what the Jews, the early religious fanatics did. So now here he was, one of them, going to kill people, going to arrest them and have them thrown into prison and now he is the subject of his own religion. Now he's being subjected to the very thing that he proclaimed at one point. And so the Jews, the people who loved him, now hate him. But Saul learned of their plan. Continuing, Luke records that day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. So they were waiting for him to come out. They were going to pounce. This was a trap. 
But his followers, now he's already, now all of a sudden he's got followers. He's got different followers than he had before. He has people who now have probably heard the message of who Jesus is and have responded themselves and are beginning to follow and are now sort of his disciples. But his followers took him by night and they lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. Isn't this interesting? Now let's just stop. Let's make an observation. Let's take a look at it. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. So we make an observation that that Paul is now hated by the very people he was for, and he is loved by the people he was against. And when he tries to go to Jerusalem then, the very place that he was on his way to take all the prisoners, he shows up and he's got a whole group of followers now. Instead of showing up in shackles, they're showing up in freedom. And he walks into Jerusalem and he tries to join the disciples, the 12 disciples. And what do they say? No, thank you. We know who you are. We know who you are. I mean, let's just stop for a minute. Let's go back to our analogy. So Osama bin Laden's still alive. You find out he's been converted. Becomes sort of, he's starting to emerge as like this, this leader. He hasn't become Pope of the church yet. And he sends you a letter and he says, I'd like to meet with you. How, how would that go for you? Right, you got an invitation. Come over to my compound. Let's have a visit. Yeah, is that something you RSVP to? No. I mean, let's put ourselves in the disciples' place here. Of course, they're not going to meet with him. They're totally afraid of him. And they weren't believing that he really was a disciple. Now, here's the thing. Like, the truth of this story is that he is a disciple. Is that not the case? But he's being judged. There is a conclusion that they are coming to. And it's a pretty good conclusion. But it's still wrong. You can have a pretty good conclusion about somebody and still be wrong. All of the preponderance of evidence can point at the guilt of an individual and you can still be wrong. You can be in agreement with the majority of people who are coming to the same conclusion with the preponderance of evidence that a person is a certain way and still be wrong. And here's what we find in here. Let's make an observation that those who loved him now hated him. And those who were afraid of him now protected him. Isn't that interesting, the switch that takes place? But there was a person who made all of this happen. And as a matter of fact, it is this person for whom there is a conclusion to this text we'll get to. And you'll look at it and you'll say, oh my goodness, all of that came from this one person's actions. Yes, it did. All of this conclusion, which you'll see, I'm not going to tell you ahead of time comes from this one person's actions. Let's take a look at it. Luke records for us. But Barnabas. Now, don't you love in the Scripture when you see a but? Because then it's not concluded, is it? The story isn't over. For the disciples, the story was over. They're afraid of him. They're not going to touch him. They've made a conclusion and a judgment. For the Jews, they made a conclusion and a judgment that he's wrong and he's now one of the heretics and he's, he's against God. Now, I just want to ask you a question. Were the Jews wrong in their conclusion about Christianity? They were in the majority in understanding that Christianity was blasphemous to God when in actuality, as you and I sit here, we are a result of the fact that it was the truth that Jesus was the Son of God. Were the Jews right in their conclusion? No. They were in the majority, and they made a decision, and they were wrong. But Barnabas, now he is the shining character in this whole story, because the amazing part about Barnabas is that he could see right through all of it. 
He was so secure in his opinion as discerned by God that he stood in the middle between two groups who had concluded about Saul. But Barnabas, the text says, but this man who could stand and be independent in his thinking of what was going on and was unwilling to make a conclusion about somebody, and we'll see this again in a bit. I'm going to bring it back up to you in a bit, so hold on to this. Barnabas took him. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. Now, this is such a beautiful act because you think it's such a simple thing, but you're about to see how transformational this really is. Barnabas stood in the gap. He stood in the middle between what two people thought about an individual, and he stood in the minority. And I'll tell you, it takes a courageous person to stand in the minority and to stand up for somebody with grace. Paul, or excuse me, Saul was not extended grace by anyone. But Barnabas comes along and he stands with this individual and he brings him to the apostles. Now look at what happens. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly. Now see, Luke, Luke chooses his words carefully. So here's, here is Saul preaching fearlessly in a context full of fear. Why did the Jews want to kill him? They were afraid. Why were the disciples unwilling to meet with him? They were afraid. And here Luke says, he preaches fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Barnabas stands up for him. And here's what Barnabas was willing to do. And here's, here's how we are to be like Barnabas then. Barnabas extended grace where others extended hate and fear. You see, whenever you find judgment, really what you find is you find hate and fear. We're afraid of something in someone, so we judge them. Barnabas extended grace. You see, he stood in the middle and he said, no, we're, gonna, we're going to give grace in this moment. And I'm going to stand with my friend against the majority of voices. So Barnabas extended grace where others extended only hate and fear. Let's continue with the text because it's very important to bring up this conclusion. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Continuing, he talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews. And of course, they listened and submitted and came to faith. And no, the Hellenistic Jews, which were the people who were non-Jewish Jews. Yeah, it was really clear, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, Hellenistic Jews are Greek, meaning that they are not Jewish by heritage, but they're Jewish by conversion, all right? So the Hellenistic Jews, those who had come to believe in Judaism but were not Jewish by birth or part of the nation of Israel, they even tried to kill him, all right? Now, let's, let's take a look then at the result of what happens when Barnabas steps into this. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace, and was strengthened. Luke says that the result of one man's unwillingness to step into the judgmental fray is that the church enjoys a time of peace and strengthening because Barnabas refused to come to conclusion about somebody before he knew them. And I just let me just do some application here for you because this is where we're now really going to get into the teaching, okay? We've made some observations. Now let's jump into the teaching. It's this, that when we hate and we fear what we don't know. The thing that we hate 
and fear that brings us to a place of judgment about somebody is that we actually don't really know. I mean, think about it for a moment. You've, you think about the most offensive segment of our society to you. You think about that for a moment. A group of people who hold beliefs that are contrary to your own, who uh, have values that are different than your own, who see relationship and sexuality different than the way you see it. Think about people who have different political views than you. Think about people who are in different socioeconomic brackets, or dare I even say races. I want you to think about those people for a moment that cause you offense, that are difficult for you to really understand. And my guess is, is that if there is any hate in your heart or any fear in your heart, it's because you really don't know that person. And it's funny because we get so fired up about this stuff, particularly politically, socioeconomically, the way we relate to people who are in the media, the groups that are being promoted, the groups that, are, that have the loudest voice. We look at them and we sort of, we sort of say to them, I, I just don't get it. I, I, I don't understand it. I'll just be confessional with you for a moment, okay? I have African-American friends. I love African-American people as much as I love anybody else. One of the things I struggle to understand is, is the whole Black Lives Matter thing. Do you, do you kind of struggle to understand that? Now, one of the reasons I struggle to understand that is I'm not black. It's as easy as that. I've not lived a life in which I've experienced discrimination, either at the corporate level, the political level, the individual level. I have not experienced racism. I just don't, because last time I looked, I'm white and I'm a male. So I don't experience a lot of it. I'm also not a woman. I don't know what it's like, and, and God bless her, you know, Marilyn is one of the most talented people I've ever had the opportunity to work with. Oh my goodness, just the giftedness and ability this woman has is just incredible. So blessed to have, yeah, you want to applaud, don't you? Yeah, that's great. Yeah. yeah. But I don't know what it's like to, to be a woman. And you know what? I'm learning. Well, no, that's... <laughs> I retract that statement. Not learning what it's like to be a woman. Don't worry about me, I'm okay. I'm learning what it's like to be a woman from a woman. And it's funny, I mean, when Marilyn got here, like, she did some certain things I didn't really understand. One of them was she turned our desk. Like, all the desks in our office kind of face the walls, and she turns her desk that you have to sit behind it. So I remember when I came to meet with her for the first time after she moved in her office, her desk is turned, I have to sit behind it. And then the chairs are lower than her chair. So now I'm behind her desk, and I'm looking up at her. And I'm thinking to myself, she's sending me a message. <laughs> like, I'm getting the message. <laughs> and, and I remember I just asked her, and she had this like, amazing explanation for why she had her desk turned, that nobody else had theirs turned. But I tell you what, I could come to a conclusion, you know what, somebody else actually came to me and made that observation and said, you know what, is this woman on a power trip? No, I'm serious, that's what they thought. It's like, is this woman on a power trip? And I'm just going to be confessional. I'll tell you right now, that was actually my first thought. I didn't know her. I walk in, her desk is turned, I'm sitting in a chair lower than hers, I'm looking up. What do you think my conclusion's going to be? Is this woman on a power trip? Next time I'm bringing in pillows so I can sit them, sit higher. So I asked her, I said, well, why'd you turn your desk? Right? Because, because we hate and we fear what we don't know. But when I found out, when she shared with me why she turned her desk, it made total sense to me. Oh, okay. And the person that came to me and said, what is this person on a power trip? I said, you know what? I asked the same thing. I just wanted to know. And she said, this is the reason. You know what that person said? Huh. By the way, he's a white male. Huh. 
I never thought of that before. Yeah, neither did I. We just learned something. I could tell you more. You want to know more about Marilyn? Yeah. <laughs> Marilyn said no. Do you want to know more? Well, I'm learning a ton. I tell you, just uh, the pleasure it is, the, the gift it is to work with um, all-female staff. I, I really was hesitant when Marilyn was hired. I'm thinking, I'm thinking all of our staff is female but me. This isn't going to go well. Like, this just isn't good. But I'm learning. Like, I'm learning a lot. How to get my shoes to match my shirt, you know? I'm learning all kinds of stuff. I'm just kidding. But the, and, and the point is, is like, I'm a better person for that. And, and so to not come to conclusions about somebody, but to actually ask, and when you get into the known, when you actually know them, let me, let me just boil it down to a point. You could even write this down if you wanted to. We judge people from a distance. We love them up close. We judge people when we are at a distance, but when we come to know them, when we start to see the commonality, when we start to understand each other rather than coming to conclusions about each other's actions, we actually extend grace in that moment. Grace doesn't go a distance. Judgment does. Judgment can shoot across a room. Grace only has a very close proximity. It doesn't go very far. It is so powerful but it doesn't go very far. You have to get in close proximity for people to experience grace. You can judge them from a distance, no problem. That'll go miles. But grace is extended within feet. I have to get really close. Now, that doesn't mean I don't have a, a, a large personal space, okay? So please don't get into mine. But the point is, is that it comes when we are in close proximity with each other. When we want to hear each other's stories and experiences... And when we come to understand the backgrounds of each other and the personality types that are different in this room, that's when grace starts getting expanded and expounded. Now, let me turn a corner for a second and just talk about this for a moment because now I'm going to get into a conversation around personality. The reason I'm going to do that is because I feel like sometimes in the public position and role that I have, I get judged a ton. I get judged a ton. And I don't mean for my sin or my not sin. I know that some of that takes place. And I'm a sinful person, chief of sinners right here. Absolutely, I'm an ugly mess. Okay, got it. But I'm also a unique person with a personality that is different than yours. And here's, here's the sad part, congregation. And I just want to say this to us, at, you know, on behalf of Marilyn and myself both, right? We as congregations have an expectation or an understanding of our pastors in such a way that they should be a certain way. Does that make sense? Like, we expect everybody to be kind of the same. Now, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you the things I'm not, and it's not going to surprise you, all right? Now, here's the thing. But when I tell you what they are, you're going to wish they changed. I'm just going to say that. I'm going to show you who I am not because I know who I'm not. And you're going to look at them and you're going to say, well, how can that guy be a pastor? I just don't get it. But at the same time, like, it's not going to surprise you. You're not going to look at it and say, oh, I didn't know that about him. Okay, you ready? Let's just get it all out on the table. All right? Here's who I'm not. I'm not laid back. All right? Like, you just want to have a conversation with Chris and relax over a cup of coffee. You're not going to have it with me. Oh, I just wish my pastor was laid back. We have good conversation about spiritual stuff. Not going to happen. This is not me. I'm not laid back. I'm not an organizer. Have you seen my office? Okay? Oh, but you're not professional because everything isn't in a pile or in a file or know where it is. I know where it is. It's in a pile like that. It's like right there. Got it. Okay? It's just not me. I'm not organized. You know what else I'm not? I'm not an extrovert. But I think a lot of us in this room hoped I would be. 
You see what, see what, see the list? We all wish this was me, right? I, I wish this was me, right? I wish I could be more laid back. I tell you, I'd have less stress in my life. But I'm not an extrovert. You know what else? I'm not detailed. You come up to me and you start talking. I tell this to our staff all the time and like most of them know it except for Marilyn. <laughs> I'm not detailed. So people come up to me and they say, okay, I want to give you all the details of my ministry and what's happening. So we're going to do this and this and this and this and this. And then they start to see I fall asleep. Like it's, it's an insult. I actually fell asleep on Marilyn once. What, why do you gasp? <laughs> well, when I'm sitting lower than her and she's... <laughs> no. Um, I'm not detail-oriented. I'm not detail-oriented. So if you come to me and you start talking to me about the details of something, you're going to watch my eyes glaze over because I get overwhelmed and I can't handle it. Like, I need bullet points. Boom, I'm done. That's it. Now, here's the biggest revelation of all. Like, you're totally going to be shocked, right? Totally shocked, aren't you? I'm not warm and fuzzy. That's not me. But here's the thing, let's just, let's just get it out on the table, let's be confessional. That's what you want, isn't it? No, let's just be honest, it's, it's what you want. That's what you want in me. But you ain't going to change me. And I can try all that I want to be warm and fuzzy, but it's a personality thing, it's just me. Now I'm putting these things up here because they're my weaknesses, and I just want to say to you, will you love me anyway? Will you love me anyway? Now, I bring certain strengths, but these aren't, these aren't, ah, well, come on. You can clap for Marilyn, you don't need to clap for me. So, but, but, but these aren't them. So you walk up to me and you don't feel like I really, really care. Know that I do. It just comes out different in me. I, I care about this church a lot. I care about you a ton. But it just doesn't come out in me the way it does in other people. And you know what? That's okay. Now, let's get the projector off me for a second, put it back on you. You have people in your life that are hard to love. And they're hard to love because you want them to be a certain way, and they're just not that way, and you've got to come to accept that that's just their personality. They don't think like you, they don't look at the world like you, they don't understand like you, they don't relate like you, but that's okay. It's okay. This is how we move forward as a church. This is how we love each other, Right? We come to accept each other, that we see the world. Some of us are really emotionally volatile and we're like, gosh, I wish they'd find some steadiness. Then there's some people who are really steady and we're like, gosh, I wish they'd get a heart. There are strengths and weaknesses to everybody's personality type. I'll tell you where the disagreements come within church life is around this stuff. It comes around this stuff. All right? So let me just sort of sum all this up. Put grace in its place. If I could leave you with anything out of this series, it's this. Put grace in its place. What's it? Whatever you've put there instead of it. If you put judgment there, take it out and put grace in its place. If you've put conclusions there, take it out. If you put hate and fear there, take it out and put grace in its place. Because it will ca cause you to have to close proximity with people. I want to leave you with this final text before we wrap up, and it comes out of Acts chapter 15, because this is such a fascinating bit of the scripture for me. I wanted to read it to you, because I think, again, it speaks to who Barnabas is and his character and why we can conclude what we conclude about him. 
In Acts chapter 15, we find that Paul and Barnabas end up going on a mission together. They begin to spread the gospel together. They become partners in ministry. And why wouldn't they and why shouldn't they when Barnabas stood up for Paul the way that he did and Paul could trust him like he could trust no one else? And so they go out and they begin to found churches. They begin to start movements. They begin to make disciples. And they're absolutely taking on the world. Remember, Acts chapter 9, the church has been strengthened and it has found peace. And so as they go... We rec- it's recorded just, what, six chapters later, Luke records for us that sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the Lord's followers in the cities where we preached his message. Then we will know how they are doing. So you can imagine this conversation over coffee. Paul says to Barnabas, hey, Barn. That's what he called him. Why don't we go back and visit all of the people who came to faith while we were preaching through those cities? Okay. Barnabas wanted to take along John, whose other name was Mark. Okay, so you got Paul and Barnabas having a conversation. Hey, let's go visit all the people. Barnabas says this. Hey, why don't we take John Mark with us? But Paul didn't want to. Because Mark had left them in Pamphylia and had stopped working with them. So here's what happens. Paul and Barnabas are having a conversation. Hey, let's go visit all the believers. Barnabas says, hey, it's a great idea. Let's take John Mark with us. Paul says, no. That jerk abandoned us. We were working. There's a little bit of pressure. Yeah, they were picking up stones and they were about to arrest us. But he went running the other way. He's not coming with us. No way. But isn't it interesting that Barnabas, again, it's Barnabas, who stands there, who stood with Paul, now releases himself from Paul and says, I'm not going to judge with you. Let's bring him. Barnabas standing in the middle for somebody else yet again. And it says that Paul and Barnabas argued. Can you imagine that in church? I mean, really. They argued. I'm going to find the perfect church that has no conflict. So Paul and Barnabas argued. Then, you would hope, right? They came to some agreement, right? No. No. Paul and Barnabas argued, then each of them went his own way. Barnabas took Mark, and they sailed for Cyprus, and Paul took Silas and left after the followers had placed them in God's care. And so here, they split up in an argument. Over what? Sin? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Personality differences. Maybe John Mark had some good reasons. Maybe Barnabas knew what John Mark's reasons were for leaving. And Paul didn't. And he didn't like it. You know, Paul wasn't exactly a warm fuzzy either. Barnabas was. And God uses people's personalities in different ways. He didn't use a warm fuzzy to plant churches all over Asia. He used Paul. And he didn't use Paul to stand up for the likes of people who are marginalized. He used Barnabas. And you know what actually happens when Barnabas takes John Mark and goes to strengthen the churches through encouragement and Paul takes Silas? They actually double the encouragement rate. Have you thought about that? That maybe God uses our differences in grander ways than we could ever have imagined and we're so caught up in the difference, we don't see the plan. 